0: Just now, north of the border, we're remembering the disruption which took place 150 years ago. And what was at stake then was a question of authority. What rights does the state possess vis-à-vis the church? When is it that the church is duty-bound to say, we serve another master, one Christ? And on that basis... To reject the attempts of the state to encroach on what has been committed by Christ to the government of the church alone. The basic issue was one of authority. Who has the right to impose their will? And today, in these three lectures, it's very much the same question, the same issue of authority although on a much more wide-ranging scale. And hence the title, Trust and Obey. We're dealing, we're going to deal with matters that constitute the fundamental divide in the church today. We're all very aware of divisions over matters of church government over liturgies or patterns or times of worship, over things like certain basic Christian doctrines. But today we're looking at something that's much more fundamental than any specific Christian doctrine. What lies behind them all? An acceptance of Scripture as the standard, the God-given norm. Not just of church practice, but the God-given norm for all human living. Because it's God's word, it addresses us with his authority. And it's backed by the sanctions of his power. It's God's word and it addresses us in our deepest need. With the message of his love, with the message of his grace, Supremely with the message of Jesus Christ and the renewing ministry of His Spirit. And it's vitally important that we have a right attitude towards Scripture, towards its status, a right attitude towards how we're going to use it. Much of the, many of the problems that arise, much of the difficulty, that arises within the church is because of a lack of clarity over the way in which Scripture comes to us and addresses us and demands our response. We dare not devalue Scripture and we dare not neglect it. And equally, we mustn't tamper with it either. The church is strong. The church has a clear message to proclaim, only as it recognizes the the standard of Christian truth and acts upon it. And that has been long recognized as one of the distinctives of the evangelical community within the church. It was for long one of the non-negotiable aspects of what it meant to use the title evangelical, that it was being accepted that the Bible was the norm, that Scripture was the standard, and that all matters Christian should be settled and viewed in terms of it. I'm afraid that the situation's more clouded nowadays. There are many who want to use the title evangelical. But their stance regarding Scripture, its authority, its clarity, uh, their stance is not all that one might wish it to be. But it's not just within the church that we have problems over Scripture. I find that in nearly every conversation with a non-Christian, matters come around sooner or later to the Bible. They've got their ideas about life. Sometimes they've got strange ideas in scriptural terms. But they come and say things like, well, everyone's going to be saved, or death's the final experience and there's nothing beyond it. And you, you tell them, but that's not so. You say, death isn't the final experience. Our existence is eternal, neither in heaven or hell. And they turn and say to you, well, you can have your opinion. I've got mine. Who's going to judge between us? Well, we both just have to wait and see of what happens. And in that response, in that dialogue with the non-believer, we're being faced with the question of authority. What is it that justifies us in saying one thing and not another in matters of religion? We would say to the unbeliever, look, look you've only got an opinion based on what you think an opinion based on what you think is reasonable or likely. What I'm telling you is based on the word of God, on the Bible. It's on an altogether different basis. It's not my opinion. It's not what I think's likely. It perhaps may not sometimes even be what I would have wanted. But it's what God has actually said. Oh, and then you get a, a barrage of questions back. How do you know the Bible's the Word of God? Aren't there many other sacred books in the world? Doesn't every religion have a sacred book? How do you know your Bible's the ultimate authority? Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Aren't there many things in it that we know from scientific research are untrue? Hasn't the Bible changed as it was copied and recopied over the centuries? Do you really know what it originally said? And perhaps the one that's most difficult of all to answer, that's only your interpretation of the Bible. Aren't there other Christians who believe differently? Why should I accept what you're saying it says? That's a massive agenda. And I'm not going to be able to cover it all today. But that's the area... I want, those are the areas I want to be probing with you. And I hope to introduce a number of, of matters related to them uh, that will be helpful, both in our own perception of Scripture and in how uh, we can present an evangelical position to others. First of all, let's consider what it is that's happening at a theological level. I think that can actually be very helpful. Don't don't be put off by the word theological. Some some people think that that makes it difficult. But no, it doesn't. We've got to realize what's going on whenever we discuss Christian doctrine. Because there's no Christian doctrine without problems. And there's a very good reason for that. God wants us to trust in him. He speaks to us in his word, and we have to believe it, just because God has said it. That's the ultimate and proper reason for believing the Bible, because God has spoken and recorded his truth. Uh, the American theologian B.B. B. Warfield, who did so much in, in the area of working out a, a doctrine of Scripture, uh, once produced a, a short compendium of the Christian faith, in which he said, God teaches me in his holy word that is the Bible, what he is given by the infallible inspiration of his Holy Spirit in order that I may certainly know what I am to believe concerning him and what duty he requires of me. I may certainly know because God is teaching me through the Bible. My certainty isn't because the Bible's been confirmed by scientific investigation. My certainty isn't because the Bible's been confirmed by archaeological investigation, or even because other ancient sources uh, provide similar information. The basic fundamental ground for certainty in Scripture is faith's perception that it is God who has said it. You see, this is where the age-long battle centers. Do I accept the Bible on the authority of God or because it can be proved to satisfy my mind, to satisfy my intellect? That was man's sin. Man's sin in the fall, was a desire for a self-sufficient knowledge, becoming like God, a craving to shake off all external authority, work things out for himself, be the ultimate determiner of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And God's word comes to us in such a way that we have to repent and renounce the way of working things out for ourselves. we have to humble ourselves and submit to him, intellectually as well as in other ways. Otherwise, we become like those whom Paul describes in the first chapter of Romans, who, professing themselves to be wise, became fools. It's only as we come with the right attitude towards God that we will also have a right attitude towards his word. And when we come in that way, we can regain the knowledge for which we were made, the knowledge that comes from taking God's word as true. It doesn't involve renouncing our intellects. It doesn't involve an anti-intellectualism. It requires the trust, faith's dependence on God following in his way and rejoicing to understand and explore what he's given. Now what that means when discussing biblical doctrine in general and the doctrine of the Bible in particular is that we'll never be able to prove it like a geometrical theorem. I don't know if they still do geometry in school the old way, But the old way of doing geometry was you had your assumptions. You had, first of all, you said what you were going to try and prove, then the assumptions you were making, and then the way you proved it. Now, the problem is what people are prepared to grant by way of agreed assumptions. That's where the dispute is. It's not the logic that operates further down the argument, the When it comes to talking about the Bible, the dispute is over the assumptions, the presuppositions. Because others operate on their set of presuppositions. Sometimes they're not aware of it. Because their presuppositions reflect the the current consensus, reflect what people in general are thinking in our day and age. And it's very often the case that we're not aware ourselves how often we're making basic assumptions without questioning them, without thinking them through, just because they seem natural and reasonable, uncontroversial. Nobody disputes them. Arguing about presuppositions is very difficult because basically presuppositions are things you either accept or don't accept. If you can argue for them, it means that there's some prior a set of presuppositions uh, that you can agree about to argue towards them, so that in discussing the Bible, the authority of the Bible, it really comes back to the world view, the view that one takes of this world as created by God. That it comes back to being prepared to accept that there is a God who has spoken. And what we're to do and say in that sort of situation is to make the options as clear as possible. It's not a matter of two equally plausible opinions. It's rather a matter of what the world wishes were true and what God has actually said. We present to others the difference between the total package based on these presuppositions and challenge them on which side. Their allegiance lies. The evangelical view is to emphasize that God is and God has spoken, and that word that he has spoken is found in Scripture. Having got that far, we can now open up the problems with that basic doctrine. There are three areas that I want to take up with you. They won't, unfortunately, fit neatly into the three slotted hours. There'll be overlaps between the two, but we'll take them up in succession. Because I, first of all, want to ask, how is it that we've got the Bible? And that concerns matters of canon, text and translation and then I want to consider what claims does the Bible make for itself and that will be looking at matters of revelation and inspiration and then if you're still with me we'll look at how are we to use the Bible, the matter of hermeneutics if if theological is an off-putting word, hermeneutical Comes pretty high in the same ranking. I've left that to the end. So we'll start off then, how have we got the Bible? What claims does the Bible make for itself? How are we to use the Bible? Now, as we come to the Bibles that we use every day, I'm starting off at the the opposite end. Normally, discussions of this sort start way back, God speaking. I'm going to start where we are and work back the way. As we come to the Bible that we use every day, we're aware that it hasn't come to us directly from God. It's not like Moses who had the tablets of stone on Sinai. The Bible has come to us through the instrumentality of a chain of human intermediaries. And so this first section, how have we got the Bible, is concerned with the human element of who gathered these books into one collection. How were they copied over the years? How are they translated and made available to us? So within the general heading of how have we got the Bible, there are the three matters of canon, text, and translation. Let's start with canon. Why are there 66 books in the Bible? Bible is one, and yet every Bible begins with a contents page that lists the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. Why are there 66? What is it about them that brings them together, makes them into a unity so that they're brought into one book and aren't just an assortment of books Would it really matter if there were only 64 or 65? Or on the other side, would it matter if there were 67 or 70? Now, those aren't questions that ordinarily worry the church. We've grown so used to the Bible as we have it that we just accept it and use it. Uh, I think you would get worried if somebody opened up the Bible and said, I'm I'm not quite sure this should be here, but I'm going to talk to you about this passage that really oughtn't to be here. The church accepts the Bible. It's generally only when we're in a situation of explaining what it is we have to others that we begin to wonder, how do we justify it? It's certainly the case that the individual believer doesn't feel any constraint uh, in being limited to these 66 books. Uh, This is the collection of sacred writings uh, to which we turn for an uh, authoritative word of of comfort or, or admonition. It's a fundamental assumption that these are the Bible. But we can't leave it like that. Because in our day, there are many who are being perplexed by the very fact of the Bible. The word canon has as its basic idea the concept of a reed. It comes from the same root as the word cane. Originally it referred to a long straight rod that was used for measuring in building tasks or something like that. And then it came to convey the idea of a standard or rule or, or norm of faith. And eventually canon came to refer to a, a catalogue or list of things that come up to the standard. So that we say the canon includes all those books that are God-given and authoritative. Why are there 66 books in the Bible? The, 60, the canon is the sixty six books now we've got to be careful here there are two different cert- different ideas that have to be distinguished we can say the canon includes all those books that are god-given and authoritative on that basis a book was canonical as soon as it was written if a certain Writing had been the product of divine inspiration. It rightfully belonged to the canon right from the very moment it was first written down. But the canon is also, and perhaps even more often, thought of as the list of books that have been accepted by the church as fundamental and constitutive. There's nothing wrong with that, but we've got to watch that we don't slip into the Roman Catholic idea as if it were some group of men, some church council, that by adding a book to the approved list gave it something that it didn't previously have. The church does not stand above scripture. The Bible doesn't derive its authority from any ecclesiastical pronouncement, from any human authority. It's not the church that constituted the canon God did. The church recognized the canon, the canonical books. Church councils didn't give these books their divine authority. They had that authority right from the moment they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Church councils were called upon to recognize what already existed, to acknowledge what had already been given to the church by God. It was really a case of the church adding its amen to the revelation that had been given. And very often these matters were only formalized when there was a dispute, when there were those who by taking a different view of what was truly canonical, forced the church to formalize its position. Let's be more specific. Uh, Let's think about the canon of the Old Testament. The idea of something being canonical existed amongst the Jews long before they had a technical vocabulary to describe it. But in the first century AD, well, we have evidence that writings that were suitable to be read in the synagogue were designated as writings that defiled the hands. It's a rather strange way of looking at it. But the the writings that the, the Old Testament scriptures, that's what they were referring to, were called the books that defiled the hands. Uh, the implication's probably that the whoever touched the sacred writings had then to go and wash their hands before they were allowed to touch anything else. seems to have been based on what we see in the great day of atonement, when the high priest not only washed himself uh, when he put on the holy garments before going into the sanctuary, but he also washed himself when he took the holy garments off and came back out again. What the Jews were saying with this vocabulary was that taking up and reading Scripture in public wasn't something that had to be done lightly. It was something that had to be done with all due reverence. They were already acknowledging, as they had done for centuries before, that Scripture was something set apart. Scripture, the Scriptures of the Old Testament, um, were already canonical, and we know which books were involved. We can see from a very early time in the evidence of Scripture that the written word always had a major part, major role to play in the life of God's people. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to 26, at the end of what's known as the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. The written word was right at the heart of the tabernacle. And the written word has been a thread, has been the thread of continuity uh, throughout the experience of the people of God ever since. Uh, Later on in the history of the Old Testament, the prophets accepted the primacy of the law, but they also claimed that their words that they were speaking were not their own. They were of equal authority with the law. They came from the same divine source. The prophets came and said, Thus says the Lord. And when their writings were gathered, there was no formal declaration uh, by some church council that these works are now canonical. They were accepted into the life of the believing community because of the recognition of the prophetic authority. And therefore the works the the writings of the prophets were obligatory for faith and life. I'm not going to follow the process through in detail. It's difficult because the evidence is vague. Uh, There's a lack of um, contemporary detail as to how the Old Testament was formed. But we see in the Jews of our Lord's day an acceptance of Old Testament scripture as canonical. And the New Testament church very much conscious of its origins, indeed, accepted the Old Testament, not because it was the Jewish Bible, but because Jesus had accepted the Old Testament. When we come to the time of Christ, we see that there is gathered in Judaism the scripture that is accepted by Christ, And the church accepts the Old Testament because he did. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to accept the authority of Jesus Christ. It requires saving faith. It's a personal commitment that man naturally isn't able to give. But the question of the Old Testament belonging to the canon of the New Testament church is very much historical at that level. Jesus accepted it, and looking at the records of the New Testament church, we can see that they also accepted it on the basis of the Lord's example, on the basis of the dominical example. And we can see abundantly in the New Testament that Christ accepted the Old Testament as true, authoritative, inspired, The God of the Old Testament was the living God. The teaching of the Old Testament was the teaching of the living God. What Scripture said, God said. It was the Old Testament that our Lord took up to do battle with Satan. And alike with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he doesn't call in question their appeal to Scripture. He, He rather rebukes them for their failure to study it profoundly. You diligently study or study diligently the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And of those scriptures, Christ was prepared to say they cannot be broken. There is no doubt that it was the 39 books of our Old Testament that Christ was referring to as the scripture. The scripture... Basically, the things that are written. There are numerous citations from Jewish sources of our Lord's Day that there were 22 or 24 books in the Old Testament. Just by the way, um, you are aware of the, the easy way of remembering I don't know which way around it goes Perhaps I can, the, how many books are in the Old Testament how many books are in the New Testament there are as many books in the Bible as there are chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah <laughs> and the break between the Old and the New Testament occurs in the same place that many people want to break Isaiah into between chapters 39 and 40 a coincidence uh, I will attribute no more significance to it than a coincidence others might wish to see something else Uh now, the Jews talked in terms of 22 or 24 books. That's because they didn't split first and second Samuel, first and second kings, first and second chronicles the way we did, the way we do. They treated Ezra and Nehemiah as one, and of course, the minor prophets, the 12, were one book. And that gets you down to 24. Uh, Some other Jewish scholars later on wanted to get the number of books in Scripture the same as the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, which is 22. So they attached Ruth and Lamentations uh, to the books that preceded them. So although the numbers 22, 24 are not the same as our 39, it's the same set of books that are being referred to. And that's what Jesus talked about, say, in Luke 22, Verse 44, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, The Jews operated with a threefold um, grouping of their Old Testament. Uh, The law, the first five books of Moses, the prophets, uh, which covers not only the books that we think of as prophets, They called them the latter prophets. The books of history they called the former prophets. uh, So that when they talked about the prophets, it's more than just Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's also uh, Judges Samuel Kings. And they also uh, had the writings. Indeed, the the most common uh, Jewish uh, name for the scriptures, Tanakh, is an acronym uh, made up of the initial letters, initial Hebrew letters, of law, prophets, and writings. And so when Jesus talked about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Psalms being the first book in the writings, and another way of referring to the collection as a whole, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, as we know them. Indeed, there's another reference that makes that even clearer, once you understand it, and that's Luke 11.51, where Jesus talks about the, from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Now, we all know that Abel was killed way back at the beginning, and you find that early in Genesis, Genesis 4. Zechariah is the last murder of an innocent person recorded in the Old Testament, the Jewish-ordered Old Testament, which ends with the Book of Chronicles. It's recorded in Second Chronicles 24 and verse 20 following. And so when Jesus was talking about from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he was talking about the full scope of Old Testament scripture as it was then gathered together in his own day. For the Old Testament, for the New Testament church, there really was no problem as regards which Old Testament books were to be authoritative. Our Lord had placed his authority behind the Old Testament as they were known and used in Judah in his day. And the strongest weapon in our Lord's armory against all perversion of the truth was "Gegraptai." It stands written. Jesus had many things to criticize the scribes, the Pharisees, the church of his day. Many things to criticize them for. Uh, but he didn't criticize them over the scriptures that they held in as canonical. They may have added to it. They may have subtracted from it. There were all sorts of problems that they had. But our Lord did not Uh, find any basic problem in their attitude there. If we move on, we don't actually move on to the New Testament. We move on instead to the Apocrypha. Now, this may not have been a problem that you've come across, but I think it's one that's rearing its head again more frequently the Apocrypha are 14 or 15 books or parts of books that were written for the most part between 200 BC and 100 AD many of them can best be described as pious fiction, religious novels Judith and Tobit contain historical and geographical errors Theological errors as well. The giving of alms is said to to deliver from death in Tobit and Ecclesiasticus. You find angels telling lies. Judith lives a a life of falsehood in which she's represented as being assisted by God. And the wisdom of Solomon teaches the creation of the world out of pre-existent matter. You'd have thought that there wouldn't have been any question about such books. But when the authorised version, and I hope you don't mind me calling it the authorised version, I I can't stand calling it the King James Version. Um, I'm old-fashioned in that respect, anyway. When the authorised version was first produced, you found them between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Apocrypha were there. In 1615, Archbishop Abbott forbade anyone to issue a Bible without the Apocrypha on pain of one year's imprisonment. There seems to have been a small edition slipped out in 1629 without the Apocrypha, but that was a a binding error. It wasn't until 1644 that there was an edition of the authorised version without the Apocrypha. And that edition was printed in Amsterdam. (laughs) North of the border, things were just the same. The Geneva Bible... The Bible of the Scottish Reformation, that started in Geneva amongst the largely English exiles over there, the same time that John Knox was staying there, it too contained the Apocrypha. It wasn't until 1640 that an edition of the Geneva Bible was published without the Apocrypha. And again, that happened in Amsterdam. So this was something that, in the murky past... The Reformed Church had a definite view regarding the Apocrypha. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, says they are not of divine inspiration and are of no authority in the Church of God or otherwise to be approved or made use of. Uh, They were recognized as profitable to be read by the Church of England. I'll not comment. Uh, They were pronounced inspired and infallible by Rome. And it's apparently a zealously guarded tradition of the Church of England that when there's a coronation in Westminster Abbey, the copy of the scripture that the monarch kisses prior to signing the coronation oath has to contain the Apocrypha. In uh, 1901, when Edward VII was going to be crowned, uh, the, the honour of presenting the Bible, of giving the Bible that would be used, was given to the British and Foreign Bible Society which at that time did not have any editions of scripture uh, without, with the Apocrypha. And at the last moment, if somebody happened to look through the nicely bound Bible that they presented for use, found the Apocrypha were missing, and insisted that a Bible from another source be found to be used in the coronation service. It's not just because of that that we have to know a little bit about the Apocrypha. Uh, it's because increasingly modern versions are having, have the Apocrypha in them. To understand where they come from and how they've got mixed up, you really do have to go back into the the history of the Greek translations of the the New Testament, of the Old Testament. Um, The Jews in Alexandria uh, wanted to have made available for the library that was um, being Founded in Alexandria, one of the famous libraries, the most famous library in the ancient world, they wanted to have there a copy of their law. They got translated the Jewish scriptures into Greek. Uh, Because so many Jews were living outside Palestine and were naturally Greek speakers, the rest of the Old Testament was also translated over quite a number of generations. But in those days, they didn't have books as we have them. Uh, The... translations were on scrolls and you kept scrolls in a box so that in a box you would have a variety of scrolls and obviously if there were a few more pigeonholes in the box left vacant and you had some more scrolls you would put them in and it was the case that many um, of the collections of writings in Greek or translation also had these pious uh, works in the same box, and when the codex form, uh, the book form, uh, was used, by, particularly by the Christian church, uh, for gathering scriptures together, many of the um, other books that were customarily found alongside the Old Testament scriptures uh, were included in the codex, in the manuscript that came to be used in the the Christian church. I don't think there was any doubt, ever any doubt, in Jewish minds that these other works were not canonical, these other works were uninspired. In Palestine, uh, that's abundantly clear, and it was obviously also clear in Alexandria. The Alexandrian Jews themselves never quote the Apocrypha as scripture. It was a Christian, an error of the Christian church, when it took over the early Jewish translation of the Old Testament into Greek to get these other books mixed up with them. And Jerome, who was one of the soundest of the early Bible translators of the Christian church, Jerome uh, emphatically declared that the Apocrypha were no part of the canon. Uh, But there were two bishop friends of his who asked for a translation of Tobit and Judith and just before Jerome died he, he made a hurried translation for his friends and they were bound up with his translation of the the Latin scriptures known as you know, as the Vulgate and literally they were included in the Vulgate over Jerome's dead body uh, opinion was divided throughout the Middle Ages about them Luther said yes they they're to be useful and read, but they're not scripture. The significant thing is that even within the Church of Rome, they weren't considered canonical until 1546. The main reason why they were considered canonical was because the reformers considered them (laughs) non-canonical. The reformers considered them non-canonical because they gave a certain amount of support to the doctrine of purgatory. And they a merit of meritorious works. But the works of, um, say, Cardinal Ximenaes and his polyglot Bible that was issued in 1520 uh, with papal approval excluded the Apocrypha. Indeed, one of um, Rome's most determined opponents of Luther, Cardinal Cajetan, actually wrote a book against the Apocrypha so it wasn't until they were reacting against the Reformation that Rome decided these are definitely canonical and they, modern Roman Catholic versions intersperse these books through the Old Testament not like the AV the AV had the Old Testament then the Apocrypha then the New Testament Roman Catholic versions tend to spread them throughout the Old Testament as if there were no difference one to the other there was a terrific battle over this in the 1820s, uh, the, um, over whether Bible societies that were then coming to life should distribute versions with the Apocrypha. The battle was won and uh, the Apocrypha were dropped, but in recent times it's becoming less, they're creeping back in part of the reason for that, of course, is the the ecumenical movement and the desire to have common Bibles. But I think it's something that the evangelical community should still be hostile towards. Uh, The Apocrypha are not inspired and it is derogatory to the rest of Scripture to bind them up in the same volume. And I would strongly urge Uh, those of you who are buying Bibles to take care, particularly if you're buying them from a non-evangelical bookshop. Mind you, even in evangelical bookshops you've got to take care as well. But to take care that the version you're picking up does not have the Apocrypha in it. Uh, There are quite a number of modern translations that booksellers who don't know anything about these things just buy in the, the other version and it is misleading, and it begins to erode one's perception of Scripture. I want to say a few things briefly about the canon of the New Testament. At first sight, that seems to require a different approach, because we can't appeal to the example of Christ. The New Testament wasn't written till after he descended from earth, so he wasn't in a position to validate them by his personal use, in the way in which he validated the Old Testament scriptures. But it doesn't prove to be as big a problem as it might seem. Although many books try to make it look a very hard matter, very complex to decide uh, on the canon of the New Testament, the fundamental fact is that the New Testament church was founded. It didn't evolve as a religious association of like-minded people who over the years decided for themselves themselves what it was right and proper to believe. The church wasn't merely a human association, it was a divine foundation. It was given its first officers by our Lord Himself. He gave the Church not only its existence but its mandate, and he, through the apostles, gave them recognized and authorized teachers. It wasn't a second source of authority. There's only one head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the apostles were able to give authoritative guidance from the Lord to the church. And so the apostles, when they wrote to the churches, demanded from them uh, the same response that the prophets of the Old Testament had. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, said Paul to the Thessalonians, take special note of him. Stand firm according to the teachings we've passed on to you, whether by mouth or by letter. And so, after the early years of the church, after the apostles had died, uh, when the church was trying to work out uh, the writings that were canonical, that were authoritative, they didn't ask in the first place, are these writings inspired? Uh, what instead they asked is, who wrote them? Was, were they written by an apostle? Who used them? Were these writings used in churches that apostles had founded? And it was also, uh, did these writings come from apostolic circles? Mark's gospel, for instance, uh, became accepted. One of the reasons for accepting it was because of Mark's connection with Peter. In the same way that Luke's gospel became accepted because of his connection with Paul. The church, therefore, in according recognition to the New Testament writings, judged them as to whether it was right that they came from apostles, as to the historical origin of the writings, and it was in a recognition of apostolic authority that the New Testament scriptures uh, were added together, were gathered together. The question the church investigated, and they investigated as best they could in terms of the, the information that was available, was historical. Can we find out, they were asking right about 150, 200 and later, can we find out competent witnesses uh, who can enable us to trace these writings back to the sources they claim to have come from? So the canonicity of a New Testament book is not settled by the authority of the early church, but by its testimony. In one sense, as I've said already, these books were canonical from the day they were written, but in terms of their being put in the recognized collection, the church, generally reacting to problems that had arisen, say, when the, the, the heretic Marcion arose in Rome around 140 AD and brought his own canon, a shortened version of Luke's Gospel and uh, one or two of Paul's epistles that he especially approved of. It was against that sort of background that the, the church had to say, well, here's the official list. They didn't create it. They rather gave recognized teaching, which accorded with the evidence that they were able to gather together. So that in terms of the canon of scripture, the, it's a fascinating story. Uh, there would have been one or two books about it on the uh, bookstall if they, uh, they were ordered in time. It's just they didn't come through in time. But you'll find that F.F. Um, F. Bruce's canon of scripture is a, a very interesting and readable account of this, as also is his uh, earlier work, the books and the parchments. Both of them uh, give very readable accounts.